your child or your loved one, they need to they need to know that you're a safe place that they can fall. Do you kind of see a synergy within the masking as being an autistic person and the masking around your gender identity? Really kind of similar sensations, similar feelings, similar similar difficulties, and it has a, a similar negative impact on you long term. But I think affirming affirming sexuality and gender identity is really important. Even if it's been six months and this is the fifth identity they've come to you with. I tried clubbing, I tried going out on the gay scene, really struggled with it. Um, clubs are not necessarily autism friendly. Hello and welcome to a new episode of This Is Autism, a podcast from the Northeast Autism Society. My name is Kerry Hycock and I'm the Family Development Manager at the charity. Did you know that more than one third of autistic people identify as LGBT plus? We wanted to explore the intersection between autism, sexuality and gender identity ahead of Autistic Pride Day on Sunday, June the 18th. Here to help us do that is our guest, Erin Eakins, the queer autistic writer and speaker behind the website Queerly Autistic and the book of the same name aimed at LGBTQIA plus autistic teens. So Erin, <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you really started Queerly Autistic? Yes, of course I can. So, um, yeah, I am a um, queer autistic writer and speaker, um, Twitter user, uh, attempt to rev activism. Um, I never, I don't like to say activist. Um, it, it feels like it comes with a lot of pressure and maybe a little bit of self-importance. So I like to, I like to say I, I, I attempt activism in my spare time. Um, and I started um, Queerly Autistic mainly because I needed an outlet to talk about things. I got my, I got my diagnosis when I was 23 and it was a whole new, new world for me to explore. And I've always enjoyed writing. So it just came about one day that I thought, you know what, I'll put this together and I'll start, I'll start writing about this. I'll start putting my thoughts down and thinking about certain topics and exploring it. So as much as it was about connecting with other people and talking about what I believed and my opinions on certain topics, it was also really important in terms of figuring myself out now as someone who'd been out for a few years as queer, but now I had this whole other identity as well. And, you know, it's, it, it reshaped my life. So um, having that outlet was really important and it, it seemed to connect with people. Um, and off the back of that, it sort of spiraled a little bit. I accidentally ended up with a book deal. Uh, I don't know how that happened, but um and I ended up writing writing this book that I'm really, really proud of. Um, and it's, yeah, it's all spiralled from there. And I've got to meet the most amazing people and interact with the most amazing people and find a community that I didn't have before. So it's yeah. been it's been quite a journey the last eight, eight, eight years, eight years since my diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. And, and I imagine there's lots of autistic people out there that are, you know, perhaps on the same journey or starting out on that journey. So what was that really like for you, Erin? You know, what was what did it feel like, I suppose, to be able to work through and figure out, you know, your own identity? Well, it's it's um, oh, it's, it's a long old journey, isn't it? I, I never think I don't think you ever quite reach the destination. I think it's one of those things you go on your whole life but you can get a bit closer to it and a bit more comfortable with it. Um, so my 
see my journey with with kind of realizing I was queer started very very young I think my earliest memory of it was when I was 12 um I remember well I don't remember but I was looking through diaries a few years ago and I found this entry from when I was 12 um and there's this whole the most angsty entry I've ever read in my life where I'm going I think I have a crush on my teacher oh my goodness this means I'm gay I'm so stressed about this what does this mean I'm very confused and then like the very next day was a very calm sort of stop being silly Erin entry that was like you've got posters of Legolas up on your wall why you can't be gay this is very silly what are you talking about and it wasn't until I was 16 and I saw a bisexual character on TV that I was like oh that's a thing that it that's the thing there's a name for this and this is a thing uh, and I can be this so there's been that was a couple of years there where it was quite difficult because I didn't have the frame cultural framework to interpret what I was feeling I remember when I was when I was in secondary school, one of my uh, teachers figured it out before I did um, and figured out that there was stuff going on with my with my with my sexuality, with my identity. Um, and she would I'd call in and I'd have meetings with her and I'd be bawling my eyes out because I was so stressed and upset and I didn't understand why. And I remember she'd pepper her desk with leaflets. And but because I was autistic, didn't know I was autistic. I was very kind of I didn't notice them because I wasn't expecting them to be there and I was very focused. And uh, so I never I never picked up one of the leaflets. And it wasn't until a few years later that I bumped into her outside of school that she told me that that's what that's what she'd done. And that was the joy of also living in a post Section 28 world. You know, Section 28 was repealed when I was 11, but I was here. I was 16 and the teachers were still too scared to broach the subject with me. Um, so there were ripples to that legislation. No, sorry, Erin, I was just wondering, just for our listeners, could you just clarify what Section 28 means? Yes. So Section 28, um, it was a law that was passed in the 80s. I can't remember the exact date, um, but it was passed in the 80s and it basically prohibited the quote unquote promotion of homosexuality. Um, Basically meant that teachers weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, People who were in positions of authority or or had any contact or responsibility over children weren't allowed to talk about it. That included like uh, scout leaders, guide leaders. Um, Basically stopped kids from being able to learn about anything other than being straight for for nearly almost 20 years. Wow, okay. I had, had never heard of that before. Okay. Yes, it was re- it was repealed in 2003. But obviously, then you had by then you had a whole generation of teachers who'd grown up scared to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come across several um, instances when I was at school after 2003 where teachers wouldn't talk about it or teachers were afraid to talk about it. Um, when I was, I think, 20 or maybe 19, 20, um, I got in touch with my secondary school because I was by that point active in the LGBT association and I asked them if I could come back and deliver a talk because it would have been really useful when I was at school and they said okay we will let you do this but here's a very prescriptive list of what you can and can't talk about and I didn't feel like I could deliver what I wanted to say with that very prescriptive list so it was still going on even after I left Um, my old secondary school now is I'm very proud of them because I they are apparently one of the most LGBTQ plus um, kind of accepting schools in the country now. There have been articles written about them. And that change happened because the students formed a uh, queer straight alliance and 
demanded change and forced the school to change. Um, so think about my time there where you'd get told off if you were holding hands with another girl. It was an all girls school. And now I look at them getting articles written about them because the students stood up and said, no, you need to be better than this. So um, it's been really that's that's been quite 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 heartwarming um seeing kind of students have that amount of impact um so yeah by the time I got to university I was then um I tried clubbing I tried going out on the gay scene really struggled with it um clubs are not necessarily autism friendly um so instead I focused on politics um I did some advocacy roles while I was at uni um, I was um, I took on some officer roles in the LGBT plus association um, and then when I was 23 I got my autism diagnosis and that added a whole other layer um, and kind of lens through which to see everything and, and to understand everything and I've sort of been figuring it out from that point on these are right, I now have these two really important facets of my identity how they kind of interweave with each other um, and I'm still on that journey. I'm still, um, you know, I identify as cis, but writing the book has and talking about things has made me interrogate my gender in different ways. I have a really interesting relationship with my gender now. Um, as I say, I still identify as cis, but there's a, there's just a really kind of, it's been a really exciting journey to be on actually. Um, so that's it's it's been a it's been a long trip and I think it's it's continuing but it's con, it's continuing at a place where I'm I'm currently incredibly comfortable and, and kind of I have a, a degree of pride and um, and acceptance in myself that I didn't have for a really long time. Yeah, and and, and you know that's really really lovely to hear, Erin. I suppose because you know if we think about the research around autistic masking and you know leading to burnout and su suicidality and and all of these you know really negative poor outcomes for autistic people. And um, I'm just interested if interested in do you kind of see a synergy within the masking as being an autistic person? and the masking around your gender identity, do you see kind of correlations between the two? Oh, huge amounts, <laughs> huge amounts. I think it's, um, I, I often draw, obviously it's not exactly the same, um, but there's, there's, there's real kind of commonalities in the, uh, you know, the, the act of masking and hiding who you are and, and, and being in the closet. Um, it's, that's really similar feelings because obviously I've experienced both and, really kind of similar sensations, similar feelings, similar similar difficulties, and it has a, a similar negative impact on you long term. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think there is kind of a big there's, there's a big overlap in terms of um, and also how you you code switch when you're with people you're comfortable with. You know, I'm so much more autistic, more autistic, quote unquote, um, around people that I know are going to be safe to be very autistic around um whereas I do still mask around in in like work situations or situations where I'm maybe not comfortable and it's the same with my with kind of my uh, my queerness um if I'm not sure that I'm safe in a situation I will um you know I will pretend I won't talk about it I'll I'll I'll, I'll it would be slightly different to how I am if I'm in a space where I know I'm safe of course, yeah. And I think that's one of the big things, isn't it? You know, um, sexuality and being autistic or having disabilities are all marginalised groups and all open to being uh, bullied. And, you know, that's where that masking comes in. It's a protection, isn't it, on many levels. It's a safety mechanism. So I can kind of see that perhaps somebody who is autistic and also has 
gender or sexuality differences that there kind of would be multiple layers of masking to kind of peel back and and work through to get to the point where you can actually you know say i'm erin and this is who i am and and a lot of that is about societal attitudes isn't it and and prejudices and and, and all of that that we talk about and and pressure yeah. as well i think it's pressure and safety and um you know i think as much as i wish we lived in a world where we could unmask all the time we don't live in that world and you know and it's when i was writing my book that was something i had to i had to actually to talk about which was say to people obviously the ideal is that you come out and you be who you are but if you're a young person and it's not safe for you to do that then you might have to stay in the closet for a bit until you're in a safer situation because your safety comes first yeah. um that's really hard because you want you want to spread a message of be yourself but you also want people to be safe um and if they need to code switch in a situation to be and to mask in a situation to be safe then that's that that's kind of the, the dilemma you come across yeah and I mean I always talk about particularly with my young people that I work with about finding your tribe finding your people you know and and do you think that the the community um the queer community is accessible for autistic people or do we have a lot more work to do I think a lot more work to do um I think that's true of actually every community I think most communities have work to do when it comes to general accessibility. Um, I think the queer community, I think there's a real and really wonderful, you know, I'm not in any way disparaging this. Um, there's a really wonderful history in the queer community of spaces like nightclubs and pubs being safe spaces. Um, and I, I love that part of our history. I love learning about that part of our history. I just can't partake in it. Um, and I have really tried to go to gay bars and uh, it's just too much stimulation for me. It's too loud. It's too bright. Um, I get very overwhelmed. I have to leave. I've, I almost had a meltdown in a club once, which wasn't the best thing to happen. Um, so while we have those spaces and I think those spaces need to be preserved and they need to be continued. I think we also need maybe more accessible spaces. We need maybe some quieter spaces. Um, we need kind of, you know, maybe some spaces without, without alcohol. Um, so I think we have to just widen the, the type of space that we have. Um, I also think just generally, same with things like pride. Prides need quiet spaces, um, need, need kind of places to, to get away. Um, I don't go to big pride parades because I know I can't handle them I'll go to smaller pride parades instead like more local run local ones um and then you just have obviously there are people in the queer community who don't understand being autistic as well as you get as you get everywhere so you then get that you do get that you experience that prejudice and you experience um queer phobia and transphobia in the autistic community as well for the same reason um that if you're not part of that marginalized group then you have the the societal prejudice you've grown up with um so there's a lot of angles that we that that needs to be worked on in terms of um being accessible to autistic people i think um lgbt plus spaces are are getting better um but we need, you know, people running youth groups to be aware that they may have neurodivergent people in there. They likely will have neurodivergent people kind of that they're looking after. Um, we need to make sure that um, 
LGBT plus affirming care that's provided people is also autism informed and neurodivergent informed. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do. I think it's getting better. I've requested quiet spaces at Prides and actually had them happen, which is better than it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, so I think that there is definitely it's it's definitely slowly kind of moving forward. Um, I think an, an issue that you also have in with general disability accessibility in in queer spaces is that a lot of them are a lot of them are, are historical. A lot of them are in older buildings that just are inaccessible. Um, my stepmom is a wheelchair user, and and she there's a lot of gay bars she can't go to um, because she's a wheelchair user because the the buildings are just not accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's almost an element of we need to create more accessible spaces and. Um, also, I think disabled people, including autistic people, I think we need to be given the resources and support to create our own spaces as well. I think that's really important. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, and actually, a couple of things you, you touched on there, Erin, um, it's interesting you mentioned nightclubs or nightlife. It's probably, I don't know what the right phrase is. I'm getting too old. But anyway, um, that stuff you do. <laughs> I'm working with a well-known nightclub um, in Newcastle, actually, that was originally set up for marginalised groups for people um, from different ethnic backgrounds. And it was created as a real safe, split, safe space for marginalised people to come together and really just hang out and have fun and feel protected and feel like it was okay to be who they who they are and it's been really interesting that we've started a group with um some some adolescents some autistic adolescents and brought them into that space and it's 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 interesting that the attitudes and the values that that are within that space are absolutely aligned to what we're doing in terms of your divergent affirming practice but actually you're right the environment is not autism friendly i mean the it's a dark nightclub with lots of unusual smells and and carpeted floors and different Uh gradients across the across the club and and it is really interesting that although you know we're open and we're welcoming in terms of our attitudes the environment doesn't actually always match up so i think there is a lot more work to do around just making places a little bit more safer for people isn't it you know Agreed. And and not necessarily meaning that you can't have those spaces, just have alternatives as well. And I think it's really important to say as well, obviously, that, that my experience in not being able to go to gay bars and stuff is is not necessarily a universal autistic experience. I, I have a couple of autistic people that I know who are actually in some ways maybe more sensory seeking. So they actually thrive in a nightclub environment because they love they, they they're sensory seeking rather than kind of um sensitive in that way so it's, it's really interesting seeing different autistic people who might need different things which because again we're not a monolith so it's not just one solution will, will work for all autistic yeah people. i agree we were doing some work around a quiet space actually and, and a couple of the young people said um why are you calling it a, spy, a quiet space? Actually, when I need to calm down, what I need is quite a lot of stimulus because these young people are quite hypo-sensitive. Um, and it was just quite an interesting you know, way of looking at things that we don't just strip everything back. There are some people that need actually the, the big, bright, noisy environments. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of research, Erin, what evidence is there around um, you know, the fact that autistic people are more likely to have a fluid sexual or gender identity you know what 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 does the research say about all of this stuff 
Um, well, there's there's actually been quite a lot in recent years, which is really good. Um, I think for a long time, it was mainly anecdotal. It was us saying, well, there's a lot of us. <laughs> um, or us going, most of the autistic people I interact with identify as LGBTQIA plus in some way. Um, but that's kind of that's anecdotal and that doesn't translate to resources and support. So having research coming up is, is really, really powerful. Um, the, um, the most recent one that I've seen, I think the, um, the, the third number of the, you know, a third of autistic people, I think that comes from uh, an autistic, not weird survey that was done in 2018. Um, that I think I quoted in my presentation. Um, I've since been made aware there was another one done last year. I don't know how I missed that. I think I was asleep. <laughs> You're allowed um, to sleep. But um, I'm allowed to sleep sometimes. Um, and um, I've got, there's an ADHD side of my brain that, that's been kicking me recently. So I probably completely missed it from that. Um, but the, um, the there was an Autistic Not Weird survey in 2022, which it was around about 11, just over 11,000 respondents. Um, and almost 7,000 of those were, uh, said they identified as autistic. Um, and that one actually found that um, just over 55% of respondents there identified, autistic respondents identified LGBT plus, so even more. Um, and uh, just over 18% ID'd as trans in that survey. And obviously that's that's not research that's necessarily done by a university. So it's maybe not counted by some people, but it's a huge data set to have and, and does point towards something. But in terms of sort of like um, official quote unquote research, there's there's been more of that kind of going on in recent years. And um, there was a big study by Cambridge University's um, Autism Research Center in 2021, which was a research into kind of sexual behaviors of autistic people. It was just over a thousand autistic people versus, uh, versus just over a thousand non-autistic people between the ages of 16 and 90. So um, big broad rate age range. Um, and they found that um, autistic men were three and a half times more likely to consider themselves bisexual than non-autistic men. Autistic women were three times more likely to identify as um gay um, in comparison to non-autistic women and the autistic people were generally eight times more likely to self-identify as asexual or as other sexuality which obviously covers a huge amount because they they weren't asking beyond the, the like the l the g the b um and then they asked about the a as well okay and in terms of in terms of gender identity there's been um a couple of studies a lot of them were quite small studies in the last 10 years or so um, but there was a big one uh, back in 2020, again, by Cambridge University. Um, and they actually brought together lots of different data sets rather than relying on, um, let's look at this gender, gender identity clinic or let's look at that gender identity clinic because gender identity clinics are, are a good place to start. But obviously, that's a small sample. Um, and also, um, obviously, there's these are people who've been officially diagnosed with, with some kind of, of, of gender dysphoria. Yeah. Um, so it might not be the full picture or they're getting or they're getting kind of affirming care at least. Um, but they so they did um, they did a big study. They brought together lots of different data sets and they found that trans and gender diverse people, that was their wording, um, are up to six times more likely to be autistic. Um, so the research really does show that there is a huge correlation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, absolutely. Everything that we kind of anecdotally been saying for a really long time is beginning to be backed up by this research. Um, the, the research isn't unproblematic. There are issues with research 
uh, big big issues with not clearly not involving autistic people and queer and trans people um, from the beginning. So a lot of the questions are maybe not inclusive in terms of the language they use or they're not inclusive of trans identities. The sexuality one was was particularly um, bad for that. It really didn't it, it really accept that there were trans identities. Um, so some results may be slightly skewed as a result. It looked like they were focusing on assigned sex at birth rather than than on how someone identifies now um, or what someone's true gender is um, or there's a failure to engage with the wider scope so they're not asking well if you're not lgb or a what do you identify as it's just other so there's just this anomalous other um, and there's a lot of inherent like biases and presumptions i, I talked about this in, in my talk at the conference as well that when i was um writing my book i i went looking for studies and the first one I found was one where they said well yes a lot of autistic people who responded said that they were LG or B but um, they're not actually having sex with anyone of the same gender right now therefore they're probably not as if um, and um, and that they also came to the conclusion that a lot of the men were saying that they were gay or queer but that they weren't they were just nervous about talking to women right yeah so there's lots of things to lots of complex isn't there wow i think erin what we'll do is we'll take a little break um and then when we come back we'll talk a little bit maybe about why we think there's such a huge correlation um between the two um, and then look at, at what, what support might look like for young people and autistic adults, if that's all right. Perfect. So um, we'll take a break and we'll see everybody very soon. Hi, while we're on a quick break, I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about the Family Development Service here at the North East Autism Society. The Family Development Services provides support for families pre, during and after diagnosis and includes a variety of services, including our parent and toddler groups, autism hubs, workshops for families, a dedicated inquiry line and our resource site as well, which can be found at, at the family resource site on the North East Autism Society website. So if you go to www ne-as.org.uk and go along to the family development site you can find all the information there hi welcome back to this is autism podcast um, today we are discussing autism sexuality and gender identity with erin eakins um, in part one we talked a lot about um, accessibility for autistic people a little bit about erin's journey and figuring out her own identity and looking really at some of the research that's out there around this very very important topic um, so we're going to go straight back in with the next question for Erin. Um, I suppose now, Erin, what we really want to think about is support. So, you know, if a young person is is on a similar journey or on the start of, of this journey of, of understanding their sexual sexuality or gender identity, um, do you have any tips for families, I suppose? That would be my first question for the families, because um, I do a lot of work with families in this situation, yep. actually, where they're really stuck and they don't know where to go or what to do. Yeah, I think um, obviously there's an element of individualism um, that, you know, blanket advice, it might not work for your child or, or your loved one or yourself. Um, but I think 
the few big I think the big ones for me are um is it's so important to have um to, to know that your family has your back and that your family supports you I know I've got um I'm really lucky to have parents who are incredibly supportive and I know that that's made my life easier in ways that I might not ever really understand because I've not been in a situation where my parents didn't accept me I know from speaking to so many other people who haven't had that how devastating it is and you know how lucky I was to be in a supportive situation so I think I think the the big thing for me is I think as particularly aiming at parents or, or carers or, or guardians, I think you your child or your loved one, they need to they need to know that you're a safe place that they can fall. That's the most important thing for me. They need to know that if something goes wrong or they're upset or the world is awful to them, you are you are the safe place that they can fall to. And I think that's that's kind of my, my primary thing is make sure that your child knows that. Um, another thing that I would say is I think you really have to affirm your child, even if they come to you and they say, I identify, I, I think I identify as this. And you're like, well, I don't know what that means. Or it's really important to to affirm. Um, it doesn't mean obviously supporting behavior that might be unsafe. I think that's that's a really important distinction. I've known a few people whose coming out process, they felt like they maybe had to get themselves into situations that weren't healthy or comfortable for them, um, particularly around sexuality, um, in order to, to be sure of their sexuality. And obviously we need to, that, that's not ideal. Um, you don't have to do that to figure yourself out. Um, but I think affirming affirming sexuality and gender identity is really important. Even if it's been six months and this is the fifth identity they've come to you with in the six months, it's a process of, of finding of finding labels and trying them on and see what works. And some, some people will go through a few before they find one that fits. Other people will always know who they are. Some other other people might not. So you just need to be kind of affirming that in that that's their truth in that moment. And it might not ever change from that point. But if it does change, oh, they've they've got somewhere else in their journey now. So I think that's the affirmation and awareness that this is a journey and they might try new labels and try new things. That's really important. And another one is to have honest conversations. I think I think a lot of the time and I think in the past we've done um autistic and neurodivergent otherwise neurodivergent children and young people a great disservice by not having honest conversations and education about sex and relationships and gender and I think we've um we've really kind of let let kind of whole generations down on that front um because how can you be safe and empowered if you don't have the knowledge to do it um even myself, you know, I say I most of what I learn about queerness and, and sex, I learn from being in fandoms, which is not the ideal place to learn about those things. <laughs> Certainly not on the Internet. Um, and that was with me having a supportive family. So we really do need. To, and it was mainly because I was living in the aftermath of Section 28. And so we didn't have that comprehensive, inclusive sex and relationship education. Erin, could you just clarify for me what fandom is? Fandom. Oh, fandom. <laughs> fandom <laughs> is um, 
it's like the fan it's short for fan dominion i think it's basically when you're really obsessed with something and it's the community where you're obsessed with it okay um so i was in torchwood fandom and it basically meant i spent a lot of time on internet forums talking about torchwood um I'm currently in EastEnders fandom, which means that I spend a lot of time online talking about EastEnders. I love EastEnders. Um, I love EastEnders. Brilliant. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with the whole soap genre, but um, I, yeah, I do, I do love a bit of soap. Um, So that's what fandom is. Fandom is that, that fan space. Um, I have friends from fandom that I've been friends with for 10 years and they are my best friends. So we met on forums and now we're still friends and we've, we've gradually all realized that we're all neurodivergent, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is probably, well, you did meet in a fan forum. Um, so yeah, so that was where I learned a lot. And obviously it wasn't ideal. That really wasn't the ideal space because I was lucky that I made friends with some older queer people in tortured fandom who really helped me. But I could have made friends with the wrong person online and not realized. So it could have been very unsafe when I was 16 and 17. So I think having those conversations, even the really uncomfortable ones, like talking about porn, um, I get a lot of pushback because I talk about porn. And my, my answer is always, you you not talking to your child about porn is not going to stop your child mm-hmm. watching porn. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. There is a very high chance they've probably already seen some. Yeah. Um, so you need to have a conversation with them about, well, if you're going to watch it, you need to know this we and you need to, need to know safe. this. You need to be safe. You need to understand that this is not reality, that this is violent. That, that you know, I think you and they're uncomfortable conversations, but you have to have them. Of <laughs> it's kind of that. It feels like a bit of a balance between obviously complete, you know, validation for somebody's expression, but also as a parent care of balancing that with the yeah. risk element, isn't it? It's, you know, we've yeah. got to keep our children, young people safe. Absolutely. But also allow them to feel validated and it, it's okay to identify yeah. as. Um, you mentioned before, Erin, um, loosely about representation so I'm just interested about you know do you think we're getting better at representation in the media of autistic queer people or people with um you know gender differences do you think it's we're going in the right direction I think it's getting better I think we are we're I remember and I'm gonna you know we'll talk about fandom when I was in fandom in 2008 2007 um having actual queer representation was actually quite rare um and a lot of it was what we would call head canoning where you read the the unwritten bits of a character and go oh this character's gay but they're not saying so and then you you do that so i did a lot of that when i was a teenager whereas now it's part there's there's so there's a lot of kind of queer characters um it's not perfect um i i remember um back in 2000 and i remember back in 2011 with christian and saeed on eastenders Mm -hmm. um i remember they had the soap's first ever gay bed scene where they were basically cuddling topless in bed and they got like 150 to 200 complaints and, and it was written about in the daily mail um but now you see that with and it was and that whole story was very kind of nervously and tentatively yeah. done because they were they didn't want to have them too close because they were worried about backlash whereas now you you have kind of characters who are queer characters and queer relationships just just wandering around all of the soaps actually and um and i th- I, I i think that's a big shows a big leap and the same with um with 
we definitely get better with autistic characters as well. I mean, we recently had a kind of spark come out, which I've, I'm obsessed with. It um, looks wonderful. It looks brilliant. Oh, People need to talk beautiful. out if they've not looked at that. It makes me cry. It's so good. I've just finished showing it to my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've dragged them along with me. Um, where can people find that, Erin? Where, where can they yeah. watch it? kind of spark is available on um iplayer so it's the cbbc show um all of the um autistic characters are played by autistic actors yeah. um it's based on a book by l mcnichol who is an autistic author which is also brilliant and you should definitely read it um and there's there's a lot of people kind of obviously it being a cbbc show it's not there but there's there's a lot of readings of some of the characters as being queer by people who are fans of the show and um, so that's a whole conversation so we're getting a lot better um then in the same vein it's only been a couple of years since we had Thea's film music come out you know which was horrific which um, caused yes yes quite terrific um, and, and controversy and not and you yes. know we we still have those issues around casting and 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 the way characters are written so i mean i don't think we're at a perfect point of representation by a long way i think we're a lot further along than we were a few years ago um in terms of queer autistic characters um there's not a huge amount of them i think there's it's just, it's not something that's been broached yet it's 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 sort of you have the oh they've got queer representation has got better and autism representation's got better but it's not kind of merged um i think there was um i can't remember the name of the show i think it's everything's gonna be okay yeah which is um which was a show which did feature um queer autistic characters um it was two two women um in a relationship who were both autistic which was haven't had a chance to watch it but I've seen some of the the clips um where one of them stimming and she says I love you for the first time and then has to get down and her assistance dog lies on her to apply pressure because she's she's overstimulated because she's just said I love you for the first time and I remember bawling my eyes out when I watched that um so we're we're getting there but I I'm a big uh, I wouldn't be where I was today if I hadn't seen t- fictional characters. Yeah, they've been always been really important for me. And as well, I think around other neurodivergence. So in the last couple of weeks, I've seen quite a push around ADHD. So in Waterloo Road, we now have. I mean, I, I don't think they're played by characters that have ADHD, but we're mm. Waterloo Road and EastEnders are both um, yep. talking about people that have ADHD, which I think is good as well because often yep. that doesn't have the same community feel I don't think as the autistic community perhaps I know there's been a lot of discussion lately around that on Twitter um so it's good to see representation of all yep. isn't it which is what we yep. want um, yeah it's really good brilliant I was when you were talking about the 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 scene in EastEnders actually um with Christian and Saeed was it Saeed was that his Christian name and Saeed yes yes yeah I was thinking back to Oh my goodness, it must have been like 25, I'm not going to give my age away, but about 25 years ago when uh, it was the first lesbian kiss in Brookside with Beth. Oh yes, I Anna Friel. I might, have been, I might be older <laughs> than you, but I might, honestly, have, I might have watched it on yeah, YouTube. As a, oh yeah, as a, as a, like a child slash young person, I was like, what is going on? And I remember all the adults around me being like, this is so wrong. We need a, you know, people in school were saying, we need to write letters. This can't be on Brookside. It's a community friendly family show. And, you know, it, it, so we are moving forward. We are, but we still, yeah, yeah. 
we still got a long way it's a long way to go we still disproportionately kill off queer characters which is very upsetting and we need to stop doing that i think um and yeah i think we compared to where we were we're a million miles ahead but yeah it's still not it's still not perfect by a long way still need more representation absolutely Mm -hmm. so in terms of uh autistic pride um before we finish um Erin, how do you do you celebrate autistic pride? Do you go to any events? What 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 will you be doing this year? Not get anything booked this year. Um, I'll probably be on Twitter talking about it. Uh, I might I don't know get a cake or order dessert to my house or something. Have some fun with it. Um, I'm going. I am at. Um, uh, autistic inclusive meets autism pride fair on the th- I think it's the 30th of July so a little bit after autistic pride but I'm going to be there in London um in Woolwich so I will be there with books and signing and just talking to people um if anyone's interested in in popping along um yeah autistic autistic pride itself not get anything booked so far um in fact i think i'm at a conference for my nine to five job um (laughs) kind of uh (laughs) probably very doing something incredibly dull and boring and not as related to being queer and autistic as i would (laughs) as i would like um but i'll try and i'll try and sneak it in somehow authentic (laughs) authentic self absolutely yeah So, Erin, what's you've had loads of stuff going on, books, conferences, events, talks. What are you doing next? What is what is the grand plan? What do you hope to do? I'd I'd like to start posting more on my website again. You might have noticed a bit scarce on there at the moment. Um, when I was writing my book, it was a bit scarce um, because I was writing the book, and then after the book came out, I I hit. Uh, burnout um, which has affected my concentration ever since I'm still getting my concentration and focus back from that a little well, getting it back it's not coming back I'm finding ways to deal with it <laughs> I'm finding coping mechanisms um, so I'm going to try keep trying to, to update that so if anyone wants to keep an eye on it there's a there's years worth of stuff on there um, it's queerlyautistic.com big picture of my face on it um just in case you know you you missed it um so i'm hoping to keep that a bit more updated maybe start writing a few more articles for it again um i'm also currently working on a follow-up to queerly autistic um and this is a, a workbook um, so it's a very, very different, um, hoping to have sort of exercises and fun things and quizzes that people can do um, for, for kind of young young autistic people around sexuality and gender. Oh, that'd um, be brilliant. That'll be, that'll be so, fantastic. I've just yeah. had literally a book delivered um, on autistic burnout, which is a workbook for autistic young people. Oh. I, I really love that idea. It's just arrived today off Amazon. Um, love, I love, love the love idea that. of a workbook, giving something really practical to work through and explore. That'd yeah, like things to do, like fun things. I've got, yeah. I think I've got something in there, like design your own pride flag for you. Like what would your pride flag look like? I love it. Um, like, I'd have loved to have done that as a kid. So, you know, we've, um, so I'm working on that. I'm not sure when that will be out as it is, um, say I'm currently, it's, it's a work in progress. Um, but hope, hoping it will be out soon. Obviously I'll start shouting about it when it, when it does come out. Um, I'd love to do some more speaking engagements, but I've not got any booked at the moment, but if I do, I'll get some, I'll get it kind of flashed up. Um, but in the meantime, I'll probably just keep talking about uh, autism and queerness and EastEnders and on, on, on social media. Um, 
it's currently looking like it's currently looking like my autistic pride blog is going to be me gushing about my favorite eastenders character who, who is I it had by the way who is it oh, it's ben it's ben mitchell oh no aaron <laughs> he's my traumatized boy and i he, love him very much yeah um, he has a very <laughs> complex character oh he does he's incredibly 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 complex and uh, so i'm writing i'm going to write about kind of neurodivergence and trauma using his character as a as a springboard brilliant um so but that's that's so that's so that's probably going to be on my autistic pride post this year, my article this year. Um, but um, yeah, lots of stuff happening. Um, really exciting. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, please keep us posted, Erin, with everything you do and we'll share it out there because you're doing some some wonderful things. And just really a big thank you for being a guest on, um, on the podcast. Um, to everybody that's listening, if you do have any questions or comments about anything you've heard today and we've covered quite a lot of stuff please get in touch you can get in touch on our email which is info at ne-as.org.uk we will be launching our next episode of this is autism in july which is really going to focus on healthcare and looking at some of those inequalities in healthcare accessibility um, and really looking at how we can make things that little bit better so please share like follow you can subscribe to this podcast on apple google spotify and you can also follow us on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin or you can just check out our website which is www.ne-as.org.uk and we shall speak to you all very soon thank you bye